Okay, so thanks for coming back uh, to this second lecture in the series, Approaches to Shakespeare. Today I'm going to be talking about Henry V. Henry V. So again, I'm going to focus on a specific question. Last week I asked a question about the significance of Othello's race to that play. And this week, the critical question I'm trying to think about is again directed to the play's main character, I think I'm asking, is Henry admirable? Is Henry admirable? As last week, I'm going to try and use some different critical approaches, in part the play's relation to its source material, its iterations in print and on the stage, its critical history and its own structure and imagery to provide different ways of addressing that question. And again, I think my ultimate aim is to show that the play asks rather than answers the question. Okay, so that I'm trying to build up a sense, I think, that Shakespeare's plays are interrogative in some sense. They, they demand that we address questions or that we think about questions rather than providing answers. Now, last week when we thought uh, about Othello's genre, we met some strange creatures who, looking and quacking like ducks, did not turn out to be ducks. The duck... Uh, unlikely as it may seem, provides us with another useful critical paradigm this week. Writing in the 1960s, the critic Norman Rabkin likened Henry V to the drawing much used by psychologists to discuss mental processes in visual perception. It's a line drawing that is both a rabbit and a duck. You may be able to recall this image... The picture is either a duck with a long beak looking to the left or a rabbit with long straight ears looking to the right. Strikingly, uh, if if you can't uh, visualise this, you're like the first readers of Rabkin's essay, which makes great play on this but never reproduces the image. You can Google it quite easily, rabbit, duck. The point of the image and its suggestiveness for Rabkin's analysis of Shakespeare is that it is irreducibly dual... We can't say that it's really a rabbit, but just looks a bit like a duck, or vice versa. We can't say it's really a duck that just looks a bit like a rabbit. And in some ways, more importantly, I think, we can't compromise. We often have a literary instinct, which I think is often taught to us at school and highly valued at school, which is the instinct in matters of interpretation to compromise, to sit on the fence, to say, I can see that you're right and I agree with you a bit and I agree with you a bit and I think the truth is somewhere in between. Now, um, I think in sort of two-state solutions and other fora, that's a very, very admirable gift. not sure it's always an admirable gift in literary criticism, uh, and one of the things the, the rabbit duck gives us is an image which can't be compromised. It's not a dabbit and it's not a ruck. We can't combine it into a single image. It isn't a combination of the two because in order to see one of its meanings we have to suppress that the other one even exists. And whereas we can probably each make ourselves see the rabbit and the duck, each of us probably sees one first and the other second. We can't make ourselves see both at the same time. There's a huge psychological literature on this if you become more interested in the rabbit duck than Henry V, including that if you give people the image uh, on Easter Monday, most of them see the rabbit. But I'll leave you to explore that uh, for yourselves. The metaphorical reading, the metaphorical value of this symbol for the reading of the play, I think, is quite clear. 
Rabkin's reading of the play is nothing like as good as this inspired analogy might suggest. I don't actually particularly, I'm afraid, recommend his, his article, although I do acknowledge it. Um, but I do recommend the rabbit duck as a way of thinking about Henry V and the question of our response to the presentation of Henry and the question of whether he's admirable. Rabkin allows us to see, or maybe forces us to see, that Henry's presentation is both rabbit and duck. He is both admirable and deplorable. I think they could be attached variously to the rabbit or the duck. I don't think that rabbit is a better thing than a duck in any uh, existential sense. <laughs> the analogy means that, A, we can't say one of these takes priority. Okay, So we can't say that Henry is really admirable, uh, but maybe as a secondary meaning, he's not so great, or vice versa. So that's quite important. And also, we can't see both the meanings at the same time. We have to toggle between them. Uh, it may be possible for us to see, yes, a presentation of the play in which Henry is admirable, and yes, a presentation in which he's deplorable, but it's hard for us to see both at the same time. The play asks us then to see Henry in two distinct ways. One is, as the chorus puts it, a mirror of all Christian kings, a mirror of all Christian kings, an heroic man who leads his men with charisma, with rhetorical energy and with the winning creation of camaraderie, a man who takes the men into apparently impossible battle situation from which they emerge victorious, and a man who dedicates this victory not to himself but to God, a man who deals fairly with his men, shows no favouritism to his friends, and a man who ends the play by turning himself into a tongue-tied and embarrassed romantic suitor trying to win a haughty bride, turning war into love. Okay, so that's one version of Henry that I think the play gives us. But it also gives us the opposite. A monstrously efficient war machine, even a war criminal, as John Sutherland has provocatively put it in more contentious modern terms. A man who orders the killing, the preemptive killing of French prisoners against military law, who rejects with complete callousness his old companions who is capable of pathological, sexualized violence, who talks about brotherhood, but distinguishes between the dead of name and those not worthy of memorial. So, it's these two versions of Henry, which I think are simultaneously present in the play, that I want to discuss in the rest of this lecture. And I want to start by thinking about the chorus... Henry V is unusual among Shakespeare's plays for having a chorus figure which punctuates the action by marking the beginning of each act. It gives the play a marked epic structure, unlike, for example, the part chorus we get in Romeo and Juliet or the narrator figure we get in Troilus and Cressida or in Pericles. The chorus's speech in the play can be divided into two types – those which attend to the play as a play. Okay, so those which are reminding us that what we're watching is theatre. And those which describe and manage our view of Henry. The opening prologue, this is a famous and quite a long quotation I'm going to give you, but I'm going to use it to set up uh, the flavour of both these functions. Okay, so this is the prologue uh, to the play. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention... A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then 
should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels leashed in like hounds should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France, or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon, since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us ciphers to this great account on your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies, whose high, uprearred and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. Into a thousand parts divide one man and make imaginary puissance. Think, when we talk of horses, that you see them, printing their proud hooves of the receiving earth, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. For the which supply, admit me, chorus, to this history, who, prologue-like, your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge our play. In that phrase, the warlike Harry, the chorus introduces its admiring, intimate view of King Henry. Even the use of the diminutive form of his name works to bring us closer to him and to suggest a particular access to him. But in its repeated injunctions to the audience to work the illusion of theatre, peace out our imperfections with your thoughts, tis your thoughts which now must deck our kings, in that, those repeated injunctions, the chorus strangely undermines that effort of verisimilitude by pointing out the material aspects of the stage itself, the wooden O, the girdle of these walls, the absent present horses. If we look at some of the ways in which the chorus has been represented on the stage, we can bring out some of these tensions. What is the role of the chorus in relation to the events uh, that he, uh, or sometimes she, reports? Should we see the chorus as a kind of embedded fox reporter, spinning the news from the battlefield as he brings it to the public? Is the chorus a figure of history and historical process itself? Should the chorus exist in the same temporal world as the other characters? Derek Jacobi, for instance, made a striking modern figure in an overcoat striding around the film set in Kenneth Branagh's film, uh, in contrast to the medieval costuming of the rest uh, of, the, of the movie. Olivier, in his film, had the chorus as an Elizabethan figure on the globe stage, even as his film moves interestingly away from its early theatricality. Is the chorus a part which is doubled? It's certainly not enough uh, stage time, really, to earn a day's pay. This is an actor who has to do something else in the play as well. Uh, one view of doubling is that this actor does all the small parts, uh, the kind of messengers and stuff, and doesn't really, uh, that, doesn't, that, that doesn't really register with us. Um, but there have been some interesting, uh, more significant doublings, perhaps, where the chorus is the Archbishop of Canterbury or the French king, or even Henry himself, uh, they each talk in those exhortatory kind of terms. Henry is always telling people what to do, so is the chorus, saying work harder, uh, uh, achieve, this great, uh, achieve this great thing, so a kind of parallel between them there. These different performance echoes can articulate quite different interpretations of the chorus. 
just as the decision in Michael Bogdanov's sequence of history plays, where Henry V was the final part uh, following Richard II and the two parts of Henry IV, uh, his decision was to cast the Falstaff actor in the role of the chorus, the figure who is otherwise much missed from this final part of the story. So, the chorus's function is to direct our eye by shaping the events we're about to see. But is it reliable? It is a reliable narrator. We all understand the concept of unreliable narrators in fiction. Here we have uh, a narrator figure uh, in, in, in a play who might be susceptible to the same kind of analysis. I just want to look in particular at the chorus to Act 4 and the scenes which follow it. So the chorus to Act 4 is charged with describing the English and French encampments the night before the Battle of Agincourt. It's a long speech, uh, the chorus to Act 4, which is all about the difference between the two sides. The French are, uh, broadly speaking, arrogant and certain of victory, and the English are uh, worried, prayerful, uh, pale, uh, anxious about the day to come. So... The poor condemned English, like sacrifices by their watchful fires, sit patiently and inly ruminate the morning's danger. So, amid this demoralised army, the English army, who feel sure that they won't be successful, the chorus tells us that King Henry moves, full of comfort to his men. So the chorus tells us Henry bids them good morrow with a modest <coughs> smile and calls them brothers friends and countrymen. Everyone, the chorus says, plucks comfort from his looks. And it turns, turns out that a, a phrase which is hard to hear without sniggering, but I think is meant, uh, um, uh, is, is meant not to be funny, a little touch of Harry in the night is the English secret weapon. <laughs> it's an ethics of companionship and solidarity. Uh, it's morally as well as militarily opposed to the presentation of the foppish French. If you read reviews of the, uh, uh, of the play and performance, um, uh, re reviewers, reviewers and, in fact, directors love anti-French uh, representations in, in versions of, of Henry V. So, the chorus is here in the role of the propagandist for Henry. He's telling us about an event that we don't see, so he's telling rather than showing... Um, but he's telling it in a particular way uh, and the agenda is to show Henry's selfless devotion to his men and the comfort they draw from his presence. So this may seem a Henry who is utterly admirable, who unlike the French who are sitting around uh, making sonnets to horses and that kind of uh, pointless aristocratic uh, chat, uh, Henry is moving around talking to ordinary men. So Henry seems really admirable. But I think then Shakespeare compromises, or at least he allows us to compromise, that initial presentation by the way he structures the scenes which follow the chorus. So, having told us about Henry moving be between his troops, this, the next scene shows us this. First, Henry encounters Pistol. He's in disguise, disguised by Sir Thomas Erpingham's cloak, and she tells Pistol that his name is Harry Leroy. Then Henry meets a group of three soldiers, John Bates, Michael Williams and Alexander Court. 
Something about the detail of those names here, I think, suggests that these, these characters who are only on stage for five minutes or something don't appear again, uh, apart from Williams, but Bates and Court never appear again. But they're given quite a, um, uh, a sense of, of, of realness and of respect and of dignity by having those full names. They're not like the plebeians one, two, and three in Julius Caesar, for example. Uh, or Gentleman 1 and Gentleman 2. Those are mouthpiece kind of characters. Uh, these characters, uh, I think, do serve as a mouthpiece of a sort, but they're also uh, given an individual dignity. So the scene is set up for the king to show off these comfort that he brings to his men and to give them good cheer. But in fact, as you've, if you've read the play, as you'll remember, this isn't what happens. In fact, far from bringing good cheer and comfort to his men, Henry gets in an unseemly row with these stoic English soldiers. And their sense that they're going to, all going to die really outweighs uh, the propaganda of the chorus. They ask the newcomer, the king in disguise, what does the king think of their chances in the battle? And the disguised king pleads for the essential humanity of the king in a wonderfully circular argument. I think the king is but a man as I am, and I am the king. He doesn't say that last bit, but I think the king is but a man, as I am. Lots of critics are very moved by this, this statement. It seems to me a completely evasive uh, statement uh, to say, as the king, the king is but a man, as I am. You're not saying the king is a man at all. You're saying the king is a king. The soldiers, however, are unmoved by this, and they continue to articulate the question that this play cannot either suppress or answer. Is the war in France just? Okay, so that's what happens at the beginning of the play, isn't it? Uh, that's what the point of the Archbishop of Canterbury is. That's the point of the long Salic law speech uh, in Act 1, Scene 2. Is this a just war? So is Henry's campaign in France just? Henry's answer to this is in some long defensive speeches which argue every subject's duty is the king's, sorry, every, every subject's duty is the king's, but every subject's soul is his own. So he says, the king can't be held responsible for the souls of the people who die in war any more than the master can be held responsible for the soul of the servant who dies while he's on his business uh, or a father responsible for the uh, son who's killed on his errand. This is a world long before health and safety uh, legislation. Now, Henry and Williams can't agree whether the king does have responsibility for the souls of the soldiers or not. And their quarrel turns to violence and they, they vow that they will fight each other after the battle with the French uh, is over. <coughs> but what Henry does in this encounter is very notably not answer the question, is the cause good? He could have settled the quarrel by saying, yes, the cause is good, this is a just war. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, anybody who dies, it's not the king's fault. Henry then withdraws into a soliloquy, so we're still going through what happens in Act 4. The chorus telling us how great Henry is with his soldiers, this uh, very uncomfortable encounter with the soldiers, and then Henry's soliloquy. This is his only soliloquy in the play. And it's a lament about the burden and the loneliness of office, which is very familiar uh, from the history plays. History play kings are always saying how awful it is to be king and how great it would be uh, to be poor and uh, uh, not have all these worries. Uh, Prince Charles cites this speech in a wonderfully barking collection of his favourite bits from Shakespeare, which is called The Prince's Choice. Um, he says uh, the Shakespeare here has a remarkable insight into the mind of someone born into this kind of position, which presumably is Prince Charles himself. 
kingship is but ceremony, Henry says in this soliloquy. And he makes a comparison between the king and the commoners, in which he seems to forget entirely that he's just met a bunch of commoners uh, and their response was quite different. Not, no, not all these, he says, thrice gorgeous ceremony, not all these laid in bed majestical can sleep so soundly as the wretched slave who with a body filled and vacant mind gets him to rest crammed with distressful bread, never sees horrid night the child of hell, but like a lackey from the rise to set, sweats in the eye of Phoebus and all night sleeps in Elysium. So Henry says people who aren't burdened with office sleep like babies, but he seems to have forgotten that he's just met three soldiers who were sitting up at night sick with worry. It seems that Shakespeare wants these men and their challenge to Henry's authority to echo in Henry's soliloquy here. I think we're supposed to see that Henry, Henry's soliloquy is, uh, is, not, uh, is not true to the situation, is self-deluding, um, is not a moment of uh, revelation and self-knowledge for him. And as Henry thinks about himself and his position, he caricatures the wretched slave in a manner which is rather different from the gestures of brotherhood that the play wants to assert. So the point of thinking about Act 4 in that way is to suggest that the chorus, which seems so hyperbolically in favour of Henry, so clearly on the side of the admirable king, may actually be a kind of self-sabotage, a sort of booby trap within the play itself, a, a structural scepticism which, uh, which draws attention to the failure of Henry to live up to the idealised view the chorus presents. Now, the idea that the play may not be as it seems and that the chorus may point out a less admirable Henry, even while it seems to be praising him, found its first expression in an important article first published in 1919, which can claim to be the first sceptical reading of Henry V. Now, the date of this critical intervention, 1919, is really important. And it's particularly important when you uh, look, say, at... Um, uh, electronic archive, back archives of journals, not to just compress all the criticism into some uh, sort of continuous present. Okay? These things were written over a long period, and the period uh, in which they were written is really important, uh, which is not to say that uh, all, somehow we're in some narrative towards um, enlightenment and that more recent stuff is better in some way, uh, but it, if, if you can think about why uh, current critics are writing in the way they are, in the way that we can understand how previous critics wrote, uh, that's very worthwhile. Um, but the date of this intervention, 1919, is really important. The author of this piece, Gerald Gould, G-O-U-L-D, Gerald Gould, had recently returned from the First World War. The, uh, World War I was a war which crawled over the same geographical territory in northern France as Henry's military campaign. The same, the same names, uh, uh, Picardy and uh, uh, so on, uh, 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 the, the same in both conflicts. But obviously the First World War moved through France with devastating consequences and was the war which, as you'll know, poetry by, say, Wilfred Owen, uh, submitted heroic military and patriotic ideals to a very scathing critique. So Gould's essay on Henry V struck a chord with those post-war sensibilities. Uh, having been through the First World War, it was possible to see something different in this play. And what Gould saw was a play that was designedly ironic. That's his word for it, ironic. 
So he argues that Henry V is ironic and satirical, uh, a satire rather than an endorsement of imperialism, patriotism and the glories of war, and suggests that for more discerning spectators there's a kind of anti-patriotic play being smuggled in with an ostensibly patriotic one. Uh, Gould thinks that this is Shakespeare's intention. We don't necessarily need to think uh, that it's an intended um, uh, duality, I think, uh, to to find his his reading uh, compelling. And in this article, he mentions three particular aspects of the play, in particular, to support his argument. The first is Act 1, Scene 1. If you remember how the play starts, it starts with a conversation between the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Ely. And their plan is to, di- uh, to divert the king from uh, his plans to strip the church of some of its funds by making him go to war. Okay, so it sets up uh, the, the, the interest in the, in the French war right at the start as being politically motivated. Uh, it's, it, Henry is being used uh, to keep him away from interfering in church business. So that's Gould's first example of how the, how the play sets up Uh, this war as as an unjust one. The second is the exposition of the so-called Salic law in Act 1, Scene 2, the source of Henry's legal claim to France. This is a hugely long long set of speeches. Uh, Often the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury is presented as a buffoon, uh, always forgetting things and getting confused in these long genealogies. Uh, Although um, an interesting production, uh, modern production by Nicholas Heitner, uh, with Adrian Lester as Henry around the time of the dodgy dossier about the war in Iraq very much made a, <coughs> made a lot of this, that the case that was made for war uh, but by, the, by the authorities was actually really important and not to be laughed at as it is in, in say, Olivier's film. We know that the Salic law is meant to be utterly complicated because there's a great joke in it where uh, the, the Archbishop says, and so it's as clear as a summer's day, and it's clearly not Uh, as clear as a summer's day. The third of Gould's uh, suggested um, locations of an anti-Henry reading of the the play is the repeated allusions to Falstaff. So here you need to know a bit about the Henry IV plays, parts one uh, and two, which precede Henry V in Shakespeare's career and which bring to the theatre the most popular character probably uh, of the period from of the period before the, the closing of the theatres in, uh, in the 1640s. So uh, Falstaff is um, a kind of reprobate, uh, drunken, satirical, lovable, fat uh, rogue. Uh, he's a kind of... The, the easiest way to think about him is he's a kind of Homer Simpson sort of figure. He does everything wrong and everything badly, but he's very lovable uh, because of that. Uh, Falstaff is not present in Henry V, although... The epilogue to Henry IV, part two, says he's going to be, uh, and instead we hear that he's, uh, he's sick and he's dying, um, but we're never allowed to forget him, uh, and it may be that because Falstaff's decline uh, is, uh, is connected to the king rejecting him, to Henry turning his back on his old friendship, uh, that this, uh, this, this, these allusions are in, intended to remind us that we don't like Henry very much. We liked his old pal Falstaff, and we don't like the way Henry has treated him. 
Now, positive, it's interesting that positive readings of Henry's conduct need to work on these particular episodes, okay, 1-1, the Salic Law, and the representation of Falstaff. They need to really work quite hard to make those episodes sympathetic. And if you look at stage versions of Henry V, which have been pro-Henry, which have thought, yes, Henry is admirable, those stage versions have achieved that clarity by cutting the things that are difficult. Okay, so there's a lot of material that you need to cut if you want to make Henry uh, look uh, a kind of idealised figure. If you look at uh, Laurence Olivier's famous wartime uh, film, for example, uh, there's a fabulous bit where uh, he, he, he goes to the uh, walls at Harfleur um, to threaten them to, uh, to surrender. And it's, a very, it's a long speech full of violent, hugely violent uh, imagery about what will happen. Uh, and it's been a great problem for readings of Henry which have tried to make him sympathetic. Olivia cuts the whole thing. It's completely cut. And you might have to compare that with what Branner does, which is uh, to cut selectively, but still to reduce uh, the length of that, of that problematic speech. Okay, so if Henry is to be admirable, that's to say, he tends to need to be airbrushed. Uh, and you can see that very clearly in, uh, most clearly in performance, I think. Now, last week I suggested that looking at title pages of early quarto publications of Shakespeare could tell us about their marketing to first readers and perhaps give us an insight into what was originally interesting about them. Uh, and if you're not really sure how to go about finding these, um, I would recommend that you go to the faculty's IBARD uh, information session. It's only an hour. Uh, it's a really good investment of time. There's one on Wednesday this week and one on Tuesday, I think, in six weeks. So sign up in the library if you want to do that. So Henry V is published in Quarto in 1600, and it's described as the chronicle history of Henry V with his battle fought at Agincourt in France together with ancient pistol, as it hath been sundry times played by the Right Honourable the Lord Chamberlain, his servants. So we can see here that Ancient Pistol, a comically aggressive figure in the, uh, in the play, is a selling point. The proper nouns, the title page, stresses are Henry, Agincourt, France, Pistol. But what I want to stress about this edition of the play, this 1600 quarto edition of the play, is that it differs from the folio text in a number of ways. Okay, so I want to just have a little bit of a digression into how we might use textual criticism, textual variance, uh, to, to focus in on particular questions about Shakespeare's plays, not just this one. So I'm just going to go on a slight tangent, which is about how to approach textual criticism. So, as I mentioned last week, about half of Shakespeare's plays are published during his lifetime in quarto format. And just to remind you, quartos are those small, cheap, pamphlet editions of individual plays. In 1623, seven years after his death, Shakespeare dies in 1616, two of the actors from the King's Men, Shakespeare's company, collect together the complete dramatic works of Shakespeare. So the two actors are called John Hemming and Henry Condell, and they collect together the complete dramatic works of Shakespeare as Master William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies. So 36 plays are published together in this folio of 1623, and that includes 18 which have not previously been published. 
So that's the book we call The First Folio. Introducing their collected edition, Hemming and Condell have something to say about plays which have already been available to the buying public as quartos and are here printed again in the folio. In their epistle to the readers, they tell us that they've collected all the plays together and published them as where before you were abused with diverse stolen and surreptitious copies, maimed and deformed by the frauds and stealths of injurious impostors, even those are now offered to your view, cured and perfect of their limbs. Publish them as where before you were abused with diverse stolen and surreptitious copies, even those are now offered to your view, cured and perfect of their limbs. So this is from the epistle uh, to, the, to the reader uh, in the first folio, e- easily found online. It's clear that what Hemming and Condell are getting at here is not an academic or neutral description of the provenance of different versions of Shakespeare's plays. It's a hard sell. We might paraphrase it as, you've got half these plays already, so why would you pay a guinea for a new version? Answer, because the versions you've got aren't the proper ones. You've been had. Here's a chance to get authoritative, authoritative copies. It's a, telling, it's a selling technique that anticipates, for example, DVD re-releases, digital remasterings, director's cuts, those kinds of things. It's a way of selling essentially the same product by uh, making out that the one you've already got is in some way lacking compared to the one which is now available. <coughs> now, despite this obvious agenda, textual critics have tended to take Hemming and Condell's account of the different printed versions of Shakespeare for the truth. And thus, where a quarto version of a play is different from, which usually means shorter than the folio version, from that we get the bibliographic idea of bad quartos. Bad quartos. Okay, so the phrase bad quartos uh, has been, uh, we now have bad in inverted commas to show A, that we don't really believe in it, but B, it's kind of a useful thing to say anyway. Uh, the, the, the idea of the bad quartos. And they usually thought to be different because they've been mangled somehow by people who aren't the author. Actors, pirates, uh, in the illegal copying sense of pirate rather than the walking the plank sense, uh, and printers. Okay, so bad quartos, bad quartos show uh, the, the mark of uh, other people other than the author, and that's what makes them bad. More recent textual criticism has been a bit less certain that bad quartos should be thought of as bad and more willing to think that different versions of Shakespeare's plays may give us insight into how the theatre worked or even how Shakespeare might have revised his own plays. The truth is we don't know why we've got the texts we've got and we don't know why they're different. But we can use them for comparative purposes without trying to identify this one is authoritative, this one is corrupt, this is better, this is worse, this comes first, this comes later. In fact, the rabbit duck might be quite a good uh, analogy again. (coughs) So if you're going to use the quarto and folio texts or different quarto readings of Shakespeare's plays, I would really counsel you against uh, trying to work out Uh, whether it's bad, whether it's wrong uh, which is better of two versions because it's too contentious and uh, too uh, too likely to get wrong and also kind of a zero-sum game once you know it, what do you know? Not very much Uh, 
Um, but what you can do is to use this material to get behind the work of editing that's been done to smooth out the texts in the forms which we access them. So if you look say, at stage directions in early printed de texts, almost every stage direction in a modern edition is put there by editors. Okay, so if you're making an argument about what happens on stage because of stage directions, uh, you're almost certainly uh, using the stage directions of a modern editor rather than the early text. So go back and, and look at what they look like. Or uh, in the early text, characters often have slightly different names or they're called different things during the course of the play. They're called different things in speech prefixes or whatever. So they, they turn out to be characters who are less coherent and less concrete, perhaps, than, 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 we, would, than we would think. Different versions of different lines can open up quite different meanings. And if you want to be persuaded of this last point, look up perhaps what's become the most famous uh, example of textual variation, the first quarto of Hamlet, dated 1603, and its version of the most famous soliloquy, to be or not to be, which gives us to be or not to be, I, there's the point, to die, to sleep, is that all, I, all, no, to sleep, to dream. I marry, there it goes. So that both is and is not recognisable, I think, as, uh, uh, as, as the version we're more used to. Okay, so that's a long way of going round what might we get from getting the six, looking at the 1600 quarto of Henry V. So, what would we get from looking at that version of the play? Given what I've been discussing for much of the lecture so far, it's really important that the quarto version of Henry V does not have any choruses... Okay, does not include the choruses at all. Not the Muse of Fire, not the epilogue, not the Mirror of All Christian Kings, zilch, no choruses. So it's a historical story without the mediation of the chorus that I've been talking about as a way of um, maybe sharpening our perspective on Henry's character. Maybe the quartos, Henry, is a more straightforward figure then. He doesn't have this ironic counterpoint. There isn't the sense of uh, the clash between the way the chorus presents him and the way he actually uh, emerges in the play itself, as we saw uh, through the discussion of Act 4 I just made. So if you wanted to make an argument about Henry's presentation, is he admirable or not, it, you could argue that he is more admirable in the quarto than he is in the folio. Okay, so that's just, just one line that maybe is worth uh, thinking about. Now, most critics who have speculated about why the choruses are not present in the quarto have argued that they are cut because they have become uncomfortably topical. The chorus to Act 5 in the folio text makes an allusion which is very unusual for Shakespeare, an explicit political contemporary uh, allusion. And it's a reference to a contemporary event, the Earl of Essex's huge expedition to quell uh, what the English called the Irish Rebellion. So the Earl of Essex leaves London with a huge army, 16,000 troops, in mid-1599 to go and fight the Earl of Tyrone in Ireland. Here's the bit from the chorus. It's telling us how we'll just have to imagine what it was like when Henry V went back to London, having been successful at Agincourt. Okay, so it's another of the choruses saying, we can't really depict this, so you've just got to imagine it. You've just got to think, what must it have been like? And in order to help that imaginative process, the chorus offers a simile. As... By a lower but loving likelihood were now the general of our gracious empress, Elizabeth, as in good time he may from Ireland coming, bringing rebellion broached on his sword, 
how many would the peaceful city quit to welcome him? Much more, and much more cause, did they this harry. So, how to imagine what it would be like when, when Henry gets back after Agincourt. Think what it would be like when Essex comes back from Ireland successful. So the chorus to Act 5 fixes the play quite specifically within a few weeks in the summer of 1599, when the possibility that the Earl of Essex's expedition to Ireland could be successful was still alive. By the time Essex returns in September 1599, it's clear that his military campaign had been a failure. The reference to Essex here with the future conditional were now the general of our gracious empress, as in good time he may, that tense still allows a positive outcome, reminds us perhaps quite usefully that Shakespeare's plays, like those of his contemporaries, are written for performance over a very short period. They might might expect ten-ish performances over a period of a month or six weeks. So they can afford to be topical since they're consumed in a very specific period context. Perhaps because this context had fallen away by 1600, the text printed that year doesn't include the choruses, although we might, of course, think you could make a more surgical cut to the choruses in order to get rid of the Essex material. But the question of the play's engagement with contemporary politics, with Essex and with the wars in Ireland, brings another historical lens to bear on Henry's presentation in this play and the question of whether he is admirable or not. 1599 was a miserable year in London. High food prices, anxieties about the succession, heavy conscription of men and taxes for Essex's army, a strain on food supplies and for other, on, on other commodities, uh, horses, uh, for example, for equipping that army. One of the forms of entertainment the theatre seems to have provided in this unpromising context is feel-good, fairytale-style plays. We might think about Much Ado About Nothing the same year. The war is, f- is firmly pushed into the sidelines. Remember, the, the, characters in, the male characters in Much Ado About Nothing are coming back from the war. Um, uh, that's what brings them into this romantic uh, uh, situation. And the, the war is converted instead into a merry war of flirtatious words between Beatrice and Benedict. Or we might think about Decker's play of the same year, The Shoemaker's Holiday, kind of Dick Whittington combined with Cinderella, where the shoemaker, Simon Eyre, becomes wildly rich, becomes the Lord Mayor of London, and a nobleman falls in love with a commoner and marries her. These are diversionary entertainments. They're like Busby Berkeley musicals in the Depression era of the 30s, or Strictly Come Dancing in our own age of austerity. They avoid difficult issues. They are ideologically escapist rather than committed. Henry V falls into this category. We can see in place of the recalcitrant Irish who would not be quelled, Shakespeare gives us the arrogant French routed by plucky English warriors. The play gives us a classic underdog story. To emphasise the magical aspects of this victory, Shakespeare suppresses the information from the sources which attribute the uh, victory at Agincourt to superior English firepower. The English don't win at Agincourt because they're right or because God loves them. Uh, they win because they have longbows, which means that the French never get near them to cut them down with, uh, w- with their weapons. 
And Shakespeare also bigs up the disparity between the French and the English dead in a long speech in Act 4. I'll just uh, just fill it in and tell you a bit of it. This note doth tell me of 10,000 French that in the field lie slain, says Henry, of princes and nobles bearing banners there lie dead 126 added to these knights, esquires and gallant gentlemen 8,400 in the 10,000 they have lost there are but 1,600 mercenaries the rest are princes, barons, lords, knights and squires here was a royal fellowship of death Henry says hearing the news of the French casualties what is the number of our English dead? Edward the Duke of York the Earl of Suffolk Sir Richard Ketley Davy Gam Esquire None else of name and of all other men but five and twenty. O God, thy arm was here, and not to us, but to thy arm alone ascribe we all. The fatalities are thus ten thousand on the bad side, thirty on the good side. It is a fairy tale ending. And just so we don't lose the message that this is a kind of idealised fairy tale play, uh, Henry V changes gear quite surprisingly and quite effortfully in its final act attempting to turn into a romantic comedy in which the fact that the princess of France, Catherine, has no choice about her husband since she is a prize of Henry's victory, this fact is completely forgotten and Henry takes on the role of wooing her in order to turn his play into a comedy. Or it ends almost as a comedy. The epilogue brings us back to earth. The chorus again has that cynical uh, puncturing Uh, uh, sceptical kind of tone this is the epilogue small time but in that small most greatly lived this star of England fortune made his sword by which the world's best garden he achieved and of it left his son imperial lord Henry VI in infant bands crowned king of France and England did this king succeed whose state so many had the managing that they lost France and made his England bleed it's hard not to feel that the play thus ends with a sort of pointlessness what has it all actually been for if this miraculous victory was so quickly lost within a generation if this is Shakespeare's attempt to write propaganda for the dark days of 1599 it doesn't quite come off he can't quite uh, sustain it So, in today's lecture, I've tried to think about the question of whether Henry is admirable by focusing in particular on the structure of the play and the role of the chorus, on the play's ironies, and on the difficulty of making the rabbit duck into just a rabbit or just a duck. Next week, I'm going to look at another play which seems to dramatise apparently incompatible views. That play is Measure for Measure. And the question I'll ask in that lecture is, what genre is this play? I hope I'll see some of you then. Thank you.